Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. So in this series on neurodiverse families, we're talking with um, Christy Forbes about autism. She is an Australian-based autism and neurodiversity support specialist with experience working with clients from all over the world. This includes neurodivergent people and their families and professionals who wish to support them. So people like educators, psychologists, pediatricians, allied health professionals, support workers, and integration aides. Her work is informed by her extensive professional experience as an educator. But I have to say what I am most excited about is Christy's experience that comes from her lived experience. She is autistic herself and diagnosed with ADHD and something we might not all be as familiar with, which is PDA. And I'm hoping she'll talk a little bit about that today, um, which is pathological demand avoidance. She's a mom, which that's my number one criteria for asking somebody <laughs> on here. Uh, she's a mom of four autistic kids ranging from, I think now, I think I pulled this from your profile, but I think between seven and 23 now. Mm, Those are yeah. the ages of your kids. Yeah. All with varying autistic expression, including non-speaking and PDA. And Christy is married to a wonderful autistic man. So could not be more excited that we managed to connect <laughs> halfway across the world. We did it. Uh, I consider that already a success. Welcome. Yes. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So much. Yeah. I love speaking about family life neurodivergent family life it's so important to center the whole family rather than just our children yeah. or just one or two of us absolutely agree holistic perspective and i hope and you're yeah. i'm hoping actually you're going to broaden our lens on a number in a number of ways because i know from a diagnostic point of view we kind of pigeonhole kids and mm -hmm. i know that you're passionate about broadening that perspective to the whole person and so yeah. on that level but also i just appreciated what you were speaking about there about broadening it to the whole family it really impacts mm. everybody. So how we work together. So yeah. maybe you could just start today's conversation by sharing a bit of your personal story around neurodivergence, if you would. Yeah. So many stories in the one story. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, so I grew up not knowing that I was neurodivergent, not knowing I was autistic or ADHD um, or PDA. I don't know how they missed the ADHD. I don't know how <laughs> anybody missed it, to be honest. Uh, well, I do. It's because I was a young female. And uh, I do believe that if I had been a little boy behaving the same way, it probably would have been gotcha. picked up. Hmm. So um, I think it took having a child who was non-speaking autistic for me to have my thinking changed and to realise that, in fact, our whole family was autistic. I'd already had children prior to her, but because they were much like me, you know, I put it down to, I put their struggles and their challenges and their anxiety down to me failing as a parent and mm. passing on my challenges to my children. I also thought there's so many people in my family 
who are like this that it must just be a hereditary thing. And, of course, it is, but not in the way that I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think I just was so connected with the behaviour that I saw in my child who communicates very differently without using her voice. And I spent some time thinking, how do I just get it? Why do I just understand how important it is to um, have things sitting a certain way with her toys or to play with them in the way that she does? I just understood it. And I think once I disengaged from, uh, look, textbook autism, basically, which is just complete pathology and invested more of my reading time and my connection time in the adult autistic community, it was like, wow. Really? It was just transformative for me. You know, it didn't take long until I went, oh, my gosh, I must be autistic. And, of course, now I look back and go, How did nobody notice? How did no one notice when I was growing up? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and of course, it's because the information that we readily have access to do, readily have access to as families is typically passed on from professionals who are really invested in the pathology model. So we're not we're not accessing lived experience, which is a completely different paradigm. Yeah. Unreal. Same for AD. So ADHD was not recognized either in you as a child, both layers. Mm. Interesting. And that insight then for your kids, what a pivotal, I'm just imagining this kind of um, aha moment that impacted actually all your understanding of every family member. Yes. And how, so yes. how how can you share a bit about how that really shifted who you identified as a with mm. as an as a family, how that shaped how you parented? It was not a smooth journey. It mm. hasn't been because I feel like the initiation for families when their children are identified neurodivergent in any way is, again, accessing that pathology model. And so we're often told, you know, your children are going to need a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist and a psychologist, and sometimes another therapy is thrown in there. And sometimes we don't need those things. A generic framework is not really what we need. It's individualised supports. Those things are great if we need them. So as a family and as a mother, I was so focused on these are the things my children need, I have to get them into therapy, and we were chasing our tail all of the time. I was stressed and burnt out. and So for a while my identity stayed the same. I kind of put it aside because I had to parent specifically one child with um, 
high support needs and other children who were highly anxious, who weren't coping in school, another one who was gifted and bored at school. So we had all kinds of situations going on. And so it took me a long time until I hit burnout and I had to leave my job and I couldn't study anymore and all I had was the floor of our living room and one of our children who was still at home because she was a baby and myself and I sat and connected. I mean really connected, observed her, played with her, got to understand so much more just through being with her without an agenda for therapy. Yeah. And I realised, wow, this pathology model has robbed me of this beautiful experience with my children where I get to see them as just who they are and rather rather than seeing them through an autistic lens according to the textbook. Yeah. It took a long time to get there, but then after that we had to really tease out, well, what does it mean to be autistic? And then after we kind of got through that, and, and it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong exploration, but then there was what does neurodivergent family culture look like? What should our lifestyle be like so that we are all supported, we are all accessing essential care because, you know, figuring out that we're neurodivergent and then continuing to attempt to live a life that looks neuronormative is so counterproductive. Yeah. It is so painful it is so stressful and it's not our way as neurodivergent people. So that's that's what changed. That is definitely the most powerful change, the changes, you know, in everyday life. Yeah. You, you talk about radical acceptance. I'm yeah. so attracted to that perspective and eager to to better understand and I'm, I'm hearing some of that quality in what you're talking about of it sounds like a shift from I'm going to stop focusing on how to fix something mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on how to connect with something mm -hmm. right that it's more around the the tunnel we choose the tunnel of of how do I fully accept this human being exactly as they are yes and and connect there rather than we fix it first so I can connect. Yeah. Yeah. Do I have yeah. that okay there? Yeah. I've never heard it put like that. That is so powerful. Fix it first so I can connect. Wow. That's so true. And and when you think about it like that, because that's where I was for a long time yeah. as a parent. Yeah. It is often caused or influenced by that generic framework that we're told to carry out, yeah. the panic from the media and society that perpetuates yeah. 
yeah. these doom and gloom narratives for yeah. neurodivergent children. Yeah. And as the adults in our families, I know for me and for hundreds of families that I sit in community with, we can't help but project into the future when you've been given information like we get from our professionals sometimes, and don't get me wrong, there's beautiful professionals out there doing wonderful yeah. things, but when your prognosis, I suppose, is built from a pathological model, mm. uh, a pathology-based just medical disorder model, you can't help as a parent but project into the future and panic and, you know, wonder things like, oh, my gosh, if I can't get them to speak now, what's going to happen to them when they're 38 years old? Yeah. You know, even basic everyday things like if my 10-year-old child who's excelling in other areas who or who isn't or who's okay, who's happy and thriving, if my 10-year-old is on their screen for more than two hours in the afternoon, are they going to be a 48-year-old still living at home on their screen? <laughs> it takes us to these outrageous places. Yeah. And I think the radical acceptance, and it's sad that we call it radical when we're accepting yeah. human beings for who be. they are. Right, yeah. But that radical acceptance, it's living in the now. It's always coming back to the now because I know the amount of time I spent as a parent new to the idea of autism in my children, um, gosh, just trawling the internet for hope, looking for autistic adults who were non-speaking as children or who had significant support needs and they turned out okay I'm saying yeah. that with quotation marks because that's yeah. where I was that's where so many families are because we can't not worry as mothers about mm -hmm. the well-being of our children but I learnt to just come back to the moment is my child okay now am I okay now am I connected with my child and it changed everything for me, just absolutely everything, because that relationship, that connection is priority. It is profoundly important. Yeah. There are no therapies that we had our children in that provided the safety, connection and happiness that they get now from their relationship with us in the moment in radical acceptance. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear the powerful, the power in the shift and how it sounds very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said about, We'll fix this first and then I can connect. Yeah. And then we have this narrative where we're always, 
always focused on the neurodivergent child as the thing that needs fixing here. But when we really think about the fact that neuronormativity is standing back and saying, oh, I need to... I need to influence your behavior so I can understand you, so I can connect with you, so I can make sense of you. Where is the disorder? I mean, for me, this is why focusing on autism as an identity and a culture rather than a medical disorder is so important because then we come to understand that the differences in behaviour, the differences in communication, they're a cultural mismatch. It's not like there's this whole part of society that is neurotypical or neuronormative and just a small amount of people who are neurodivergent. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know a lot of people think that. Yeah. But there are so many of us out here that don't know we're neurodivergent. We don't know because we've grown up knowing that we are different but internalising that we're inherently flawed and so we adapt, we mask, we fawn, we fake, we pretend we understand more than we do. We teach ourselves to make eye contact so we're not taken advantage of. We teach ourselves body language through observing others and we just think, oh, it's because I have childhood trauma, which is a very real thing too. Mm -hmm. But usually behind these generations of unidentified neurodivergence, there is intergenerational trauma and it is passed down and passed down and passed down. So we come out in adulthood and go, oh, we're not autistic. We just grew up in a really dysfunctional family home or, Uh again, childhood trauma. Mm. But they're not always mutually exclusive. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Can we talk about labeling? You you made, um, Mm. you, you put out a recent post. It was so timely. I was so grateful because we had already set up this interview and I, this came out and I'm like, yeah, bang on. Like I, this, I want to talk about. It's such a common experience that parents come to me as a therapist and say, I need to figure out what's happening with my kid because there's something different, right? It's very generic. It's very, I just have a a sense, right? So it's either a comparison to other kids in their class, a comparison Mm -hmm. to their own expectations of their child's development or wherever it's stemming from. But there's such a, there's such a worry. And I think it always comes out of a protective place of very loving parents with their hearts on their sleeves saying, I'm terrified of labels I'm terrified, like the school says, they want to have a, a psych ed done. They want to have an assessment. They want us to, because they're, they're concerned about X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And they already have kind of formulated loose labels. And they're saying, go find somebody who can help you kind of name this so that we can get, we can qualify for education supports. We can get whatever else, right? Yeah. Because that's the model. This is how we yeah. are structured in our healthcare system. Um, and 
parents' guts are saying, I don't want my kid having a chart with a name on it that's their mm. label. And yeah. my my current place of learning is I, I come from that conversation of it's not about the label or the not label. Your kids will be labeled no matter what. They're mm. either going to be. And so in your post, you talked about the default harmful labels that come with Ooh. not understanding that you are autistic. Yes. Right. That what you get called is lazy. Mm -hmm. You get called weird. You get called. Yeah. And I just think about, you know, you talking about this intergenerational trauma. And I think about this intergenerational wound of on their self-esteem. Yes. The parents who are misunderstood then critique their kids with this beautiful, yes. this beautiful, what they think is this beautiful, constructive, I'm going to shame them into being better. I'm mm -hmm. going to, and, and it's so harmful yes. all the way down. And so when I have this conversation with parents, I ask them, what do they hope will be helpful about the label? It's not, the labels don't have to be scary if mm. they're helpful to your child yeah. who in who they are and how you are as parents. But I'm wondering if you can further that discussion for us today. Just can you share your perspective on what is helpful labeling? What is harmful labeling? Yeah. When we know that the medical system and their labels are not great, but mm. we're trying to navigate a system and get the help and the support for our kids and for us as families that we need. Yeah. I totally understand this. Okay. I think what we're afraid of as parents is stigma and stereotyping. Yes. And yes. categorizing and misunderstanding yep. and underestimating or misunderstanding, dismissing, invalidating because we're pinning everything on that one word. Yeah. And it's very similar to what I was saying about, you know, having that generic framework of supports overlooks the individual. Mm. I think this, again, comes from non-autistic research about autistic people. Yeah. It comes from biased observations and comparisons to neuronormative behaviour or non-autistic behaviour yeah. and calls it disordered. And then everything you read about autism is aligned with that model. So before, you know, before we have children who are uh, potentially identified as autistic or ADHD, whatever it is, sometimes the only information we have on that is the stuff we've read in books and it is horrific right. or yeah. it is bearing witness to the struggles of other families who have neurodivergent children or it's watching a program on television where the parents are upset all the time and the child is sold to the viewers as a burden on the family and yeah. we come in with that experience which is so far removed from the child in front of us 
who we absolutely would die for and love with all of our being. And it's only natural that as parents, we would never want our children to be viewed like that by society. So I totally understand that. I've been there as a parent. Um, I think what you were saying before about being labelled anyway is so true. And, you know, I put a, put a call out on my social media saying to my neurokin, my fellow autistics, let's talk about labels and if you feel comfortable, can you share in the comment section what labels you have worn as a result of unidentified autism and some of them I wouldn't even repeat yeah but you know lazy um attention seeking um oh dumb stupid just because the the hardest thing of all is that when you show up in the world like me, like this, people who don't understand autism, who whose only understanding is the textbook version, see people like me and think that, and these are these are things that people have put on social media in response to me being this way you're delusional there's no way you're autistic you are attention seeking so Mm. we're going to wear other labels if we don't get to identify as autistic and I guess what I would say about all of this is it really highlights the importance of immersing yourself as a family in the adult autistic community. Now, there, there will be people in that community that won't be for you, and that's okay. There will be pockets of that community that are traumatised. There's a lot of trauma in the community yeah. for the exact reasons we've already covered today yeah. in our conversations. But there is so much information about our lived experience And it's a great place to begin cultivating a foundation at home of positive autistic identity, which is completely different, polar opposites to what you'll find in a textbook or in a professional development session for an educator. And I know because I was the educator getting the professional development on autism and it still didn't help me understand I was autistic. So... Yeah, the label thing is really hard, but I think something else that's really important to the autistic community is it's a reclamation. We're reclaiming that word because then there's the the whole argument about person-first language and identity-first language and you are not your disorder and... I know I'm not a disorder, but I also don't need to be reminded that I'm a person before I'm autistic. I'm an autistic person. It is central to my being. It influences 
my thinking, my feeling, all of my sensory intake, yeah. how I process it, my sleep, the foods I choose, the way I connect with others. And I would never want to be any other way. That doesn't mean being autistic is easy. It's not. It is not. It's a disability. But it doesn't have to be a bad word. Yeah. It's something we want to celebrate. When I, I so I I remember um, probably ten ish years ago taking I don't even remember what the course was, but uh, I remember somebody referring to uh, trying to create some dialogue around how, what language we use it, it, that's meant to be respectful. And the, the flavor of the day was we don't <laughs> say you are autistic. We say you have autism. And when I hear you speak, I'm like, man, dang, we got that wrong because that, and, and I get the, the feeling of that is if I, I think the attempt was to say you're apart from you. So you're not fully mm. defined by, and therefore, because it's a problem. So, mm -hmm. so we were trying to separate you from a problem. Yes. This is the compassionate lens. If we can pull yes. you apart from the problem, then we have permission to love you for who you are. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and yes. I was right. And that felt very profound at the time. And now, now I listened, you know, in the next, in the next five years and going, Oh, this doesn't feel very respectful. And my daughter who has ADHD um, wants to be identified as ADHD because it is the way in which she frames the, her entire lived experience. Mm. And she says, I, I interviewed her in the last episode to get her perspective, like, give, give me the goods. What's it like in your brain? Tell me. And, and she said, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm proud. You should be proud of who you are. And yeah. I've never actually explicitly said those things to her. Like you should be, I, it was just how we decided we were going to talk about it, that yeah. every human has brains shaped in certain ways by certain factors, lived experience. Every single brain that is walking this earth has something that has shaped it. Yeah. And so we can choose any name for any brain that we want. Right. And it's yeah. somebody's made these things up. And so now when I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm thinking how much more freeing it is to be able to acknowledge it. Similarly to uh, my daughters are also black. Um, and I, and hearing this, this perspective of, I don't see color right? Oh, is, yeah. is from society, similar, similar tone yes. to it of yes. I'm, I, I love you no matter who you are, so I don't care about what's happening on the inside of you. Mm. I think, well, do, how are you going to love me for who I am if you don't know what's happening on the inside yeah. for me? So to say I am something is actually the more respectful yeah. way, right? Yes. It's who we are, but now we don't have to say it's a problem. So why are we separating it, right? Yeah, and it's so threatening to people. It is so threatening yeah. because when when families say you know but it's not all of who you are there's still a negative connotation attached you can tell right. from the outset but sometimes yeah. they don't realize that because it is 
it's almost subliminal messages. You know, there's this whole world out there that tells us that an autistic child needs to be represented in imagery like being trapped behind glass or they're always crying or in a meltdown in images used to represent autism. There's never just people and autism on the same image. It's always something negative. So, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of parallels between uh, minority groups and marginalised folks. And I guess for me it's like I wouldn't say um, if I was... In a, so if I was gay, I wouldn't say I'm a person with gayness. I just say I'm, I'm gay. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a person with blackness. I'm just right. black. Or, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a person with Judaism. I'd say I'm Jewish. Right. And yeah. they are all different identities, but people have a really hard time with us taking a disability and making it an identity or reclaiming it as an identity and a culture because academia, allied health sciences, has tried to be respectful and said, you know, let's not let's not make a person their entire disability. Let's identify them as yeah. a person first which is where the whole person with disabilities and, you know, I love that the disabled community is now identifying as disabled. And I have to admit, every time I hear it, it's still, and Uh it's language that I use, but it's still, I, you know, it catches me off guard sometimes and I still go, oh, disabled. And then I have to take a moment and remember no, this is reclamation here. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. I think it's just so conditioning. It's social yeah. and cultural conditioning. Absolutely. And it's been this way for so long. But, yeah. yes, definitely I am disabled. I have a disability and a lot of it is aligned with the social model of disability how well understood, supported, accommodated I am. Um, But for me also there is definitely inherent disability as well, the way that I am so sensitive in, in every area and the way I connect with people can sometimes be disabling to be so um, transparent and honest means that sometimes the world is not a safe place for me, but I still would never change that and I'm still a proud autistic person. Can you share a bit about PDA in particular? It's not Mm. well known here. And I know you've mentioned that in other sources when you've had other conversations that, you know, in many countries, this is not yet well recognized. Um, But I know a lot of parents are tuning in who would likely identify with how you would describe it and might be helpful for them. Can you describe that for us? 
Yeah, um, I'll do my best. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best just to keep even, it simple. Just from your, yeah, from your perspective, yeah. So yeah. PDA, pathological demand avoidance, I prefer to use the term um, persistent drive for autonomy. I think it describes it much better. Yeah. Basically, it is a subtype of autism. So I guess it's a particular expression of autism if we move away from pathology. And it looks like in childhood a child who is really struggling to comply with everyday life, brushing their teeth, showering, doing things that they're asked to do, basic things, and it's all of the time, so it's pervasive. It exists mm-hmm. all of the time. Um, it's driven by extreme anxiety, but the anxiety doesn't present in the same way that we understand generalised anxiety to present as. So it may show up as anger, um, frequent or regular meltdowns or shutdowns, using strategies to avoid Um, demands and when I use the word demands I mean expectations of us pressure requests yeah yeah and again I didn't realize that this was me until a psychologist brought it up with me in adulthood because you get very good at crafting a lifestyle that somewhat works for you, not not having to be told what to do. So I didn't get through school. I was put into isolation at school. I was constantly on behavioural modification programs, on conduct cards, always in trouble. Um, so in the end I just left and went back to uni as a mature age student. But It brings along with it lots of co-occurring conditions sometimes and anxiety-related conditions, so OCD, um, eating disorders, which, you know, those things are also very common co-occurring conditions for non-PDA autistic folks. But PDA, I think there's a few reasons why it's not recognised or believed. Because there is another diagnosis, ODD, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, look, it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. Yeah. ODD doesn't need to be associated with autism. It's a standalone diagnosis. Um, but there is a lot of conversation emerging within the neurodivergent community mm. that we might have got that one wrong. Now that we're learning what we are about PDA, yeah, because the thing about PDA is our eye contact is often more consistent. We're socially driven. We are mm. often really determined. So when we put our mind to something, we're going to see it through. Yeah, and we're unapologetic about it. But there is yeah. also a very introverted expression of PDA too, where there's subtle strategies used to avoid demands. So it's a very complex um, autistic expression, but there are pockets 
in the US um, of organisations, communities starting organisations to work with families, but it's so important because the usual um, parenting approaches that we would be encouraged to use, even in autistic families, will often have an adverse impact on PDA children and their families. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is so critical then to understand that. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I always think the, the function of any label, the function of any support, the function of any should be to better enhance the child's self, sense of self, right? Who yes. they are. Yes. And when, when you talk about that, I think this is why the, the bottom up approach matters so much that we really observe what's actually going on and let that inform how we label, how we support, how we, that's the direction. It shouldn't be top down. Mm. And, and for us to just say, well, these are the, this is the Bible, this is the medical Bible, the diagnostic manual that we, and these are the things, right, that we're limited by. And then we're going to slot you into one of these because it's, it's what we've decided. This is the categories of humanity, (laughs) right? We have decided this will forevermore be henceforth true. And then, then we miss we miss our kids because we are not, then we get into trouble with the nuanced versions. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you, so when you talk about PDA as being kind of this fringy in between ish, it's Mm. only in between because we haven't yet recognized it and we haven't yet named it. And it's, it's like something, but not quite like something. And, and, and what the only reason we need to really understand this better is to better serve human humanity we need to right because if what we apply is our manualized parenting for generic autistic people Mm -hmm. then i'm hearing you say that's gonna have not just neutral effect it won't work but it has adverse effects oh it causes trauma yikes it causes trauma because parents are shamed yeah. And blamed yeah. for their children's non-compliance. Right. And the Ugh. amount of mothers in particular, you know, never mind thinking that we let go of the refrigerator mother theory mm. back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. It is still very much alive. We just use different language. The amount of professionals who tell parents they need to be more stern they need to instill more discipline, their child's taking advantage of them, that is so damaging because when you have a parent, and I was that parent, I took my child to a paediatrician and said, my baby is autistic. And I think that she was nine months old and I knew, I just knew, and She said, come back another time when she's a bit older. And I said, no problem, I get it, totally get that. I took my child back at 18 months and the paediatrician said, turn off the television and spend more time with her and then come back to me in six months' time. I can't tell you how insulting 
Seriously. that is. And it still happens today. That was 10 years ago. It still happens, but yeah. worse. You know, I've had, yeah. before I came into what I do now, I worked in the field supporting families and educators. And the amount of families who were being told by professionals to lock their children in rooms, to take away their comfort items, all of that stuff. And people still think that this is the way to go. And it's disconnecting for parents. And when you're a disconnected mother. Oh, my word. Yes. Resenting you know, your child's behaviour because somebody's convinced you that it's intentional, willful behaviour and not disability, all kinds of problems stem from that. And then when you are working with families like I do in the healing process because they're awake now and they see the truth, the self-blame, the shame, the internalising self-loathing, feeling like we failed our children, trying to nurture parents to come out of that because it's not their fault is just so hard. So, you know, this whole, the whole idea of the DSM, the whole idea of ticking off criteria to be able to align with an identity to be to know who you are that is inhumane it's inhumane because it changes and evolves and then it devolves and right you know we have this system where every single day i watch autistic adults who have raised autistic children say i'm so happy i've been doing this self-exploration around potential neurodivergence my whole life makes sense they come to a space of self-forgiveness and then they go to a professional and because they don't check off that criteria that's really built for white young males yep we're still following that model when they don't check that off, they don't get the diagnosis, so they come right. away feeling deflated. They've probably wasted thousands of dollars yeah, because right? that's where All we're at resources. with it. Yep. It is not okay. It's not no. okay. Yeah. And we have to do better. So in the autistic community, we 100% recognise self-identification as 100% valid if not more so than going for an assessment and having those boxes ticked. Right, right. We know who we are, for God's sake. We know who we are. We don't need somebody who's been exposed to the pathology model to choose for us, to give us permission. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. Very, very and then, you know, and at this, so we're, we're in the in-between, right? We're going to grow in that direction, hopefully. In the meantime, we have a generation of parents trying to raise kids who, who, whose gut says, I know what's happening for my kid. I know yeah. my kid. I'm the expert with my child. Yes. Um, and they 
hunt down the professional who will put a stamp on a piece of paper, which they know is not their child's fully understood version of identity, but mm -hmm. it's good enough because that is the helpful label within the construct of our health system that we have set up in yeah. order to access legitimately things that we otherwise, if we had permission to organically access, because yeah. we could say I could self-identify, I'm yeah. going to go to this place, this person, this access, this resource that would come from such a more wholesome, beautiful, mm -hmm. non-pathological place. Yes. And we're not there yet. And we're so not. I get why this is such a conflicting narrative for parents yeah. of, I want that to be the case and it's not. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'm really struggling yes. to gain access and support in the way that I need for my kids. Right. Yes. So yes. on that topic, I would love to hear your perspective. And I know as we've discussed, you cannot, there's no one child that is the same Mm. autistic or not right and that so yeah. we are not prescribing anything but as someone who has worked in this community who lives in this community who coaches and teaches mm. what do you want parents to know about what what's required of them to mm. parent well mm -hmm. when they have autistic children yeah <sighs> to just tune in to the individual child and yeah and to really, when I heard you say before, you know, um, accessing appropriate support and accommodations, I think you said, I instantly thought, how do we know what that looks like when we're in a system that tells us what it looks like? Yeah. And also, you know, tying that into what you said about parents not wanting to buy into labels unless it gets them the help at school, their children the help at school, and then they, their children at school have another generic framework that is something like notes on a board, timer on a desk, lots of um, reminders, and maybe you can have a break in the corner of the room where there's a tent with some soft something in there. Yeah. Um, We've got to do better than that. I really don't. I <laughs> really? really don't think. <laughs> I really you don't, don't say, think. Yeah. We. I I think it's blatant discrimination that children need to have a diagnosis to access support and accommodation in a school system. Yes. Anyway, right? I mean, yes. That is about that uh, don't even get me started on that <laughs> i bet I, part the, two yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh the oh. the privilege and the yeah. oh the authority hey oh. Oh. i get to tell you what you're worthy of receiving yes yeah and i will not step outside of this framework that i've decided is right for every mm -hmm. child who is autistic because we're yeah. all the same person right yeah. um yeah. at home for families i would mm -hmm. say 
Let go of everything you have ever been told about autism. Let go of everything you've ever learnt about the word, the diagnosis, everything you've seen on TV, everything you've read in books. Because if we're in a situation in our families where we are disconnected, we are stressed out, we are chasing our tail, none of that information is helping us anyway. Right, yeah. There was such a long time in my life as a parent where I would sit down and beat up on myself because I wasn't doing enough research. I didn't know about every therapy that was available. And here's the truth. If you took every therapy, every piece of information, every support, every accommodation, every expert, every professional, one lifetime would not be enough to get through all that information. So let it go. Get rid of it. Get rid of everything everyone tells you about your child and get down on the floor with your child. Parallel play. Watch them. Tune into how they respond to their environment. Trial and error, you know, changing up the environment for them. Plug into the adult autistic community. Plug into resources written by the adult autistic community. Read books written by us. Come to our events. Most of them are online because we have social anxiety and we don't want to leave out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's not the venue. What are you thinking? Uh, in person, oh no. <laughs> um, read the research and the journal articles put together by autistic scientists. Access information from autistic people because we don't just put in the research and the time and the effort into our work. We live it. Many of us are raising children. Many of us have been raised by parents who were autistic and we know that now but they don't or they didn't. Yes. Just Focus on your connection with your child, but also, and I cannot say this enough, our relationship with ourselves as parents is so important because I need healing. This is so stressful when you first come into it. And let go of the idea that you can overcome neurodivergent life, neurodivergent family life. It is going to be one hell of a ride forever. So what might feel, yeah, what might feel completely unbearable today, you may be laughing about in five years. You know, I had this, I always am just amazed by the fact that, look, eight years ago, I remember as clear as day being on my knees on my child's bedroom floor sobbing so loudly that I thought the neighbours would call the police, crying out, I can't believe this is my life Mm. and feeling 
so isolated and so lonely and so abandoned because that will happen. People will step out of our lives because they don't understand. Yeah. But it creates space for the most incredible people to come in, you know. But those same things I used to be on my knees sobbing about and crying out to whoever would listen. Yeah. I laugh about those things today. You know, my husband and I, we often talk and go, remember how this particular situation used to traumatise us and now we just, yeah, there it is, deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's about finding calm inside the chaos it is about just going okay so this this is this feels unbearable sometimes what can I do inside of the unbearable so that I'm nourishing myself even if it's you know I remember I started by putting hand cream on before I went to bed and smelling it and feeding my sense and you don't have to be autistic to no. be nourished through your sensory Absolutely. systems. Yes, yes. And then it was things like there's no way I could have had a shower alone. There's no way I could mm-hmm. have had a hot bath. There's mm-hmm. no way I could use the bathroom alone. You know, I've That's always right. got an audience. Yep. And <laughs> so working out what are the things I can do to make myself feel good and carving yeah. out five minutes to do some writing, making sure my coffee is hot and it's good and it's the way I like it even if that's the only thing I get and then over time it built up to the first time I ever said to my husband hey would you mind if I go for a drive by myself and I got in that car and I thought I was just going to go around the block but I drove all the way to the beach an hour away And I got out of the car and I took my shoes off and I just stepped in the water. And I was, I was on, you know, another planet when I got home. I was so excited that I got to go out for a couple of hours and I thought, why have I not been doing this? Yes, right. Why have I not been doing this? Because it feels too hard to think about. Yeah. But when we do it, I mean, after that, my husband and I made a schedule. Every Tuesday, you get to do whatever you want for the day. I'm not going to hassle you. I will take care of the kids all day by myself. You watch Netflix or do your gaming or go out or whatever. And we gifted one another just Mm. one day. I think it was one day a fortnight we had each. And as the children grow and develop and learn and change, so does family life and the less the less stressed I was the less I was running around behind with life and putting pressure on myself yeah the more accessible I was on an energetic level for my children and there was just calm goodness I mean, hey, I might go inside tonight and yell and scream. We are not perfect. We're human beings and we are always going to have those moments of regret. Yep. But it's about radical acceptance and celebrating our families no matter how they look. Yep. 
When you talk, I I think about all the resistance I have experienced in in just personally in relationship with anything that felt scary to me, had this outlook of what if we don't fix this now? What if we don't contain this? What if we don't, right? And the journey, the journey is so much about how do I, it's it's two things. I, what I want for my child is also to experience something where she's feeling connected with herself and not yes. dysregulated all the time. And I, but I, but I also, to me, the cost of that being the only priority was that I assumed the role of fixer Mm. and resistance. And this can't be it. We can't do this. We won't Mm -hmm. be this angry. We won't go this long. (laughs) We won't stop at the door and get stuck. We will go to the pool. We will. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because in my perspective of resistance was I need to be the one to hold you together. Right. And, and when you talk about that framework, I think about, yeah, really how I define the journey and very much still feel early in this, but the movement has been for me to recognize the, the gift, not the problem, the, the negotiation of our, mm-hmm. our needs, not just my needs, you know, it's to reshape that we do this yeah. as a family, that this is, this is, I also need self-care. We did a, we did a um, series on this podcast about parent self-care and my lens was from the parent perspective of not your average kiddo. It's of the kids who have the higher, the more difficult, the more challenging needs that we experience our resistance with. Because Mm. when we are the parent who never gets to pee by ourselves and always has somebody banging down, I would say banging down the door, but the door is always open because (laughs) what if something happens? If (laughs) So we don't lock. I still don't lock the door. My kids are 10 and 13. And like, Because I've ingrained in me that I'm always needed. I'm always right. And yeah. and in that reality of the hypervigilance and the on call and the, mm-hmm. you need me all the time for so many things, right? That, that self-care that when you describe the beach, I could just feel the sand between my toes. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, yes, because it's not commercialized. It's not the quick fix. It's not the spa day. It's not the vacation to Hawaii. It's the, how do I partner with my, how do I partner better with the other adults in my world to find sustenance and nurturing and relational self-care and us care to be able to have the distance to step back and laugh at something rather than get mm-hmm. so entrenched in fixing it and to be able to work with and go with the flow rather than have this resistant experience. Yes. It was such a good description when you shared that story of your own lived experience around that. Cause I could feel, I could mm. feel myself getting in my own car and that five minutes turning into an hour because you had yeah. permission, you had negotiated something of my, I matter too. Yeah. And I think about this parent par- parents who think my kids need so much that means I can take up so little space myself. I have to 
detach from myself and be ever present only for their needs. Mm -hmm. And we've lost your kids need you to be connected with yourself or you will not be able to be with them. Yes. And what a fine line, right? I mean, every day I'm renegotiating what the heck that looks like, but that's the feeling of we're all struggling as parents to find that, that tightrope of whatever looks like today, right? About what do I need today? Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. And honestly my children reflect back to me like a mirror sometimes in their behavior they really do the more I struggle the more of me they need because I feel unattainable to them I sorry inaccessible I should say you know if I'm having a really tricky morning or I didn't get enough sleep sometimes I don't even know I've got stuff going on but my children will show me that because they need more of me because they sense that something is compromising away. Yeah. Yeah. So giving ourselves all the time to everyone else really compromises that too. And we find ourselves in the loop of having to give more and more and more and more, because as we give more, that stress starts to build our children sense it and they need more. But today I find myself saying to my seven-year-old who's autistic, PDA, ADHD, you know, we're in hard lockdown in Melbourne at the moment and so life looks a bit different and my seven-year-old requires a lot of engagement with me, a lot. You know, I'm talking being in the bathroom and them having their pillow and blankets outside the bathroom door and they're laying on the floor covered in there yeah. and they're just happily chatting away and I'm like yeah. are you okay I mean can I get some privacy here <laughs> but I've had moments recently where I've said to her you know sweetheart I can't be playing with you all of the time there are going to be times where you get to practice using your imagination, which I know is so cool. You're you're a great artist and a great scientist. And, you know, you've got a room full of toys. You've got a million (laughs) screens. You've got access to so much fun. If I don't take a break sometimes, I'm not a nice mum. You know, and I know I'm not a nice mum. I can't be patient. I struggle to be kind. And look, we're getting there with that. My my children know my headphones go on around six o'clock every evening because the overwhelm, the sensory overwhelm is too much and I get really grumpy because my my central nervous system is screaming by then. Yeah. So you know In our families, there is this ongoing process of communicating boundaries, needs, and the importance, the whys behind those. And as our children, you know, this also ties in with the importance of them having that sense of self, having that identity. I am autistic. It's not just a brain type. It's a complete neurobiology. I remember when mum used to say, 
that she needed to have her headphones on at six o'clock every night because, and you know, they remember and identify with those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. So the more we communicate our needs, whether we're neurodivergent or not, the more yeah. we do that, we model to our children self-advocacy. Yes. Yeah. So that is just as important. It's not cruel to not be constantly engaged with our right. children. They will Amen. survive. Yeah. They will survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we need time and space and quiet. Yeah. We need it. Yeah. Yes. Ah, you've named so many things that I'm I don't know. I I don't think I'll sleep tonight because I'm going to be swirling with <laughs> so many of these things and I am going to thoroughly enjoy that non-sleep. I'm going to try and soak this all in. Um I can't I cannot thank you enough for taking the time today to do this. Um, oh, thank you. This has been so good, Christy. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and likewise there were things that you would say and I would just go, wow, I love the way that you framed that. There's so many things that I get to take away. It's just been such a pleasure. I hope you have a brilliant rest of your day. And maybe we'll talk again. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, where you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.